0: Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 6 to 14. But for the sake of clarity and context, I'm going to read the whole chapter. But we'll focus in on 6 to 14 this morning. So Habakkuk chapter 2 is... God's second answer to Habakkuk's second complaint. So the whole chapter is God's response to Habakkuk for his second complaint in chapter one. So chapter two, I'm going to begin reading in verse two. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor and an arrogant man, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake, those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbor neighbors drink You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, And there is no breath at all in it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask, Lord, that as we look at this very heavy passage, that you would give us humble hearts to receive your word. Give us minds to understand your word and that it would create in us a proper and healthy fear before a holy and good God, that we would tremble before the God of creation and know that you are also the God of judgment and the God of salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we know over the last several weeks that the book of Habakkuk is a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk's ultimately questioning the ways of God and the goodness of God. He sees the evil and injustice in his own nation, Israel, and he wonders why God has seemingly done absolutely nothing. But God answers Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 5 to 11, and he tells him that he is, in fact, doing something. He tells Habakkuk that he's sovereignly raising up the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, to be his instrument of judgment against Israel for their sin. Now, of course, this makes Habakkuk even more distraught. For he can't comprehend how God would use a more wicked nation, the Babylonians, to judge a less wicked nation, Israel. And he wonders whether God is going to allow the Babylonians to get away with their wickedness altogether. And God then answers Habakkuk again. And we saw the beginning of his answer a few weeks ago in verse 2 to verse 5 of chapter 2. And the answer to Habakkuk's question before God is fundamentally found in verse 4. That the wicked whose soul is puffed up, that is, arrogant, self-sufficient, it is not upright within him. That is, there is no rest nor peace for the wicked, even though it may seem that they are prospering. But the righteous, the righteous are those who live by faith, that is, they believe and trust God's words that he will deliver on his promises, even though their eyes say otherwise. And here in verse 6 to 20, God is continuing to answer Habakkuk's complaint. In a sense, verses 6 to 20 is a continuation of God's answer in verse 4 and 5. You see, Habakkuk thinks and feels the Babylonians are going to oppress and do evil forever, and he wonders whether God is going to do anything about it. And in verse 6 to 20, God demonstrates very clearly that he will, in fact, deal with the wickedness of the Babylonians. But this section goes beyond Babylon. Babylon. In that here in these verses God is making it clear that these truths are universal. That is these truths apply to all of humanity not just the Babylonians. God's proclaiming that wickedness, injustice, oppression will be dealt with whether it's done by nations, institutions, people or individuals, evil will Be dealt with. You see, verses 6 to 20 is in many ways the full implication of what God says in verse 4 about the man whose soul is puffed up, the man who is arrogant and has no regard for God. Verse 6 to 20 describes the outcome that will come upon the man whose soul is puffed up and has no regard for God. Now you could summarize this section, verses 6 to 20, as God's partial answer to the problem of evil. And the answer is this, justice shall prevail. Babylon will answer for its crimes. Now there's a few things I want to draw our attention to to help us understand the passage better before we we begin to go through it all. In the beginning of verse 6, we're told by God, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him? Now, the the all these is in reference to the nations and all peoples in verse 5. And the him is in reference to he in verse 5. So in verse 5, you see this. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Now, the he is, of course, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and by extension, the nation itself. And the all these in verse 6 is in reference to all nations and all peoples, that is, the nations and peoples that have been conquered by Babylon. So when God says in verse 6, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles? God's referring to the nations that had been oppressed by the king of Babylon. It's they that will take up their taunt against the king. Secondly, God seems to indicate that what is said in verses 6 to 20 are the words of all the nations that have suffered at the hands of the Babylonians. As it says, look at verse 6. They will take up their taunt and say... These are the words of the nations against Babylon, but it's important to understand that these words are actually God's words against the wickedness of Babylon. The nations will say these things, but these things convey God's stance and what God will do against human injustice. Remember, this is God answering Habakkuk. And in what the nations will say against Babylon, we discover what God will do against Babylon. Thirdly, this section is what we call woe oracles. Woe oracles. In this section, you'll notice there are five woes, right? Verse 6, woe to him. Verse 9, woe to him. Verse 12, woe to him. Verse 15, woe to him. And verse 19, woe to him. Now that word woe carries with it the pronouncement of God's judgment but it's also full of lament it's a word of warning woe is the one who lives like this trouble is at your doorstep turn from your wicked ways Now in woe oracles there are usually they're usually composed of two parts okay so the first part of a woe is the declaration of the wrong, the declaration of the injustice. That is, God is declaring what sin they have committed. The second part of the woe is the pronouncement of impending judgment. That is, what judgment is coming because of the wrong. And so all we're going to do this morning is look at the first three woes in verses 6 through to 14, and we're going to break them down through that lens. What is the actual crime or injustice they've committed, and what is the judgment that God has promised in light of the injustice. So as we go through this, you're going to see that there's a lot of repetition between the different woes. All of them have overlap and they relate. There's, there's violence in them all. But each woe has something distinct as well. So let's look at the first woe in verse 6 to 8, and we need to ask, What is the injustice? What is the thing that God has declared that they have done that is wicked? So verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So what's the injustice that has been done? Well, verse 6 tells us the man, that is Nebuchadnezzar, and really by extension the whole nation, has heaped up what is not his own and loads himself with pledges. Now, that word pledges carries with it the idea of a cloud of dirt. As one commentator says, it's referring to the defiling nature of acquiring wealth in such a manner. So they've heaped up what is not their own. That is, they simply took everything and everyone they wanted without any kind of payment for it. Verse 8 further declares the injustice and evil they've committed, right? They've plundered many nations. They've spilled the blood of men and have done violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. So here's the evil they've done. Here's the declaration of the injustice. They have gained wealth and profit through violence and oppression. They've conquered nation after nation and have taken that which is not Their own. They are, as Prior states, a people who make capital out of the misfortunes of others and who profit from human misery. They took not just the lives of people as they conquered city after city, but also all that belonged to the people, including the natural resources of the land. This was true of the Babylonians. But it's also been true throughout human history. There is example after example of nations, human beings, individuals, who have gained by violent oppression. You think of, for example, slavery, historically in America or the British Empire. It's an absolute fact that these nations and the people within these nations gained wealth partly through the oppression of African slaves. We could talk about the violence and oppression by the Greeks under Alexander the Great. We could talk about the Soviet Union or the wicked and oppression of Nazism under Hitler. You could talk about the violence and plundering of the Vikings against the Anglo-Saxons or colonialism and the injustices carried out by Spain and Latin America and the British and the multitudes of countries they conquered. You could talk about the injustice committed by African tribes against other African tribes in selling one another to the British. We could talk about the horrors committed by our own nation against the indigenous of Canada. History is soaked in humans oppressing other humans, nations conquering other nations and heaping up what is not their own. There is not a single nation upon earth that has not taken at some point what was not their own. And you know what this sin really is? We don't see it because the focus is violence, the focus is taking what is not one's own. But the sin underlying this is the breaking of the 10th commandment Thou shalt not covet. These nations were consumed with desire for what they had no right to take. Babylon in the same way. We think of our own day right now and current examples of people who gain off of the suffering and oppression of others. Think about those who gain wealth off of human trafficking by preying on vulnerable women and children. This happens in our own nation. Think about the porn industry and the amount of wealth the porn industry makes off of the oppression of vulnerable women. Do you know that the number one producer for pornography in the world is in Montreal? You think of drug cartels, corrupt governments, abortion clinics that intentionally plant themselves in poor communities where they take advantage of the poor and make a ton of money off of vulnerable women. You think of people that have suffered horrifically all in the name of scientific progress and technological advances. I mean, We could go on and on about nations, peoples, individuals who have profited off the suffering and oppression of others. This is what the Chaldeans did. And God pronounces through the first woe that those who do such things will reap what they sow. And that's the pronouncement of God's impending judgment. Look at verse 7. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those awake who will make you tremble? You will be spoiled for them, verse 7. Verse 8. The remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. See, here's the impending judgment for their crimes. What you have done will be done to you, an eye for an eye, a life for a life. You have violently oppressed and plundered peoples and nations, and now the remnants of those nations and people will plunder you. Proverbs 22.8 says this, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. Now there are a few things here that are significant for us to see. For one, the Chaldeans didn't see themselves as indebted to anyone. They saw the nations as indebted to them. Yet God says, your debtors will suddenly arise. They saw the nations indebted to them, but God sees things very differently. This is a major turn of events. And this turn of events, Habakkuk makes clear, will come suddenly, suddenly. You see, this is God's answer to the complaint for how long in verse 6, but also Habakkuk's complaint in chapter 1. God tells Habakkuk in verse 3 of chapter 2 that though the vision may seem slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And when it comes, it will come suddenly. Though the wicked may prosper and thrive for a time, and it may even seem long to us, God does make clear that when his justice comes, it comes suddenly. We've seen this play out in history. You think about the sudden and swift disintegration of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall on November 9th, 1989 the tyranny of communism in Eastern Europe was finished suddenly. Or you think about the fall of Rome in 476 AD at the hands of the barbarians. So few imagined that Rome could fall, but it did, and it happened pretty swiftly. See, though there may be a time of waiting for God's justice to be enacted, when it does come, it comes swiftly See here's the thing the thing we need to see Behind the events of human history stands a God who is upholding justice See we're not to conclude from these verses that these other nations are morally right for taunting and plundering the Chaldeans for what they did We are to conclude that God will somehow bring about justice through these nations plundering the Chaldeans in the same way that God will bring justice through the Chaldeans destroying Israel. This is the first woe. You have been plundered, you have plundered, and you shall be plundered. The second woe, verse 9 to 11, what is the injustice, the crime that they have committed? Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. So what's the injustice? Well, verse nine, he has gotten evil gain for his house. He has set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. He has cut off many peoples. Verse 10. See, in the first woe, the focus is on what the Chaldeans amassed for themselves by conquering these nations. But here in the second woe, the focus is on how they used what they amassed. Most likely, this is a reference to the palace palace of the Babylonian king, but it's probably also the idea of his family and his heirs. See, through his evil gain, he wanted to build a giant but secure palace that would protect his heirs so that he could make an everlasting name for himself. The imagery is powerful, right? To set his nests on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. Eagles will set their nests on high so that other animals can't reach The eggs. That's what's going on here. The king of Babylon wants to establish security and safety for himself and for his heirs. But he has done this through evil gain. You see, there is gain that is morally right. You work hard and you make a living. And through your working hard and your skill set, you can gain wealth. There's nothing wrong with that. God honors hard work. See, having wealth is not an indication that you've gained that wealth at the expense of others. Now that being said, there are many who gain wealth through evil means. The Babylonian king took these conquered peoples and turned them into slaves and had them build his palace and many other things just like Pharaoh did with Israel. He's used the oppressed and the poor to build him safety and security, which affirms, verse 4, that the wicked are never at peace. Remember, verse 4 speaks of the man whose soul is puffed up and is not upright within him. That is the man whose soul is never at rest. And I think we see that truth here in verse 9. A man who lives by evil is in constant fear of evil. Think of Osama bin Laden. For almost all of his adult life, he lived in hiding because of the evils he committed. There was no rest for his soul. Those who gain their wealth by immoral means will always feel the need for security and safety. And So here we see that the Chaldean king has built for himself a glorious and secure palace Through evil gain. Through violence and oppression and the oppression of vulnerable people. That's the declaration of the injustice. So what's the impending judgment that God pronounces? We'll look at verse 10. You have devised shame for yourself. Nebuchadnezzar pursued glory for himself and his empire. And he pursued this through greed, pride, and violence. And God says, what you think has produced for you glory has actually only produced shame for yourself. Shame will come upon you far faster than you could possibly imagine, Nebuchadnezzar. You think of Hitler, who sought to build a thousand-year German Reich. He came to power in 1933 and on april 30th 1945 he took his own life shame swiftly came upon him you have devised shame for yourself o king of babylon those who pursue their own glory will be shamed by god now what else does god pronounce you have forfeited your life verse 10 isn't that that's shocking You have done all that you can to build an everlasting name, security for your future heirs, but in all of this, you have actually forfeited your life. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? You see, if there is one truth that is absolutely certain in the scriptures, it is this, the absolute certainty of the collapse of the proud. And then God declares in verse 11, the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. What's God getting at here? What's this imagery about? Well, the king of Babylon has done all he can to build a palace for safety and security and glory. But the stones that are used and the wood that's been used to build this palace will be the voice of the cries of the oppressed. I think David Pryor captures this so powerfully. The evil game with which he has gathered the necessary resources to to construct his citadel has embedded itself in the walls and the beams. Those ruthlessly plundered to provide stones and wood live in the very materials used to build the palace. There is something battered and bruised in its very structure Voices of the oppressed will cry out from the wall in the royal bedroom, and other wounded voices will respond from the beams in the ceiling. The king of Babylon will forever be haunted for his crimes against humanity. This is the pronouncement of God's impending judgment. Shame will come upon you, your life will be forfeited, and the cry of the oppressed will live within your own power. That's the second woe. The third woe, verses 12 to 14. What is the injustice? What is the crime? Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. King Nebuchadnezzar has built towns and cities with blood, and he has founded them on iniquity. Notice how the woes built. The first simply spoke to what they gained through conquering. The second focused on how they used what they gained in establishing the palace, but now it goes even further. It's not just the palace, but the cities themselves. Everything the Babylonians built was done through oppression and evil means. They have shed blood in order to establish and build their glorious cities. There is only the cursing of God for those who build cities and empires on human blood. So what's the impending judgment that God has pronounced? Well, verses 13 to 14 give us the answer. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Through these words, God is declaring that all such enterprises are ultimately doomed to frustration and failure. Nations weary themselves for nothing. The king of Babylon has put so much effort to building his palace and cities through the work of slave labor from the nations he's conquered, all for the sake of giving himself a name. But as this verse says, it will be for nothing. It will go up in flames. All this labor will be in vain, futile, and meaningless. As Psalm 127, 1-2 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. You see, if a foreigner had visited Babylon, they would have been completely awestruck by the wonder of the palace and the cities that were built they would have been completely impressed by the magnificence and glory of Babylon. We saw that in the scripture reading this morning in Revelation 18. The merchants and all the different groups of people are amazed at the city of Babylon, but they're shocked because the city of Babylon has fallen so suddenly. See, the world may be amazed by the glory of Babylon, but from God's point of view, God didn't see splendor and majesty, because he knew that all of it was built through the shedding of human blood. And here he declares that all of it will be destroyed. All this labor and effort to build this great city will be for nothing. It will be, as Pryor says, consigned to fire and will prove an empty nothingness which is precisely what happened when the Persians came in and destroyed Babylon. This is the impending judgment in this third woe, but verse 14 is also a part of the pronouncement of God's impending judgment. The reason why their labors will be ultimately nothing is because of verse 14. For the earth will be filled With the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now how is that judgment? How is this knowledge of the glory of the Lord filling the whole earth impending judgment against Babylon? Well because Babylon desires for the whole earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar wants to make an everlasting name for himself and to establish an empire that lasts forever. And God declares, all your labor is in vain, for there is only one name, one glory that will cover the whole earth, and that name is the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amen. There is only one kingdom that will be an everlasting kingdom, kingdom and that is the kingdom of our Lord, Jesus Christ. See, if the glory of God is to fill the whole earth, as this verse suggests, it means that anyone or anything that is hostile to the glory of God will be destroyed. As Prior states, if the kingdom of God is to come in its fullness, all other kingdoms must be swallowed up. We actually see this described in the vision that John receives in Revelation 11, 15 to 18, at the end of all things. This is what John describes. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The reason why that statement, the glory of the Lord will cover all the earth, is a declaration of judgment, is because in doing so, the nations, the wicked nations, will face the judgment of God. See, this statement by God in Habakkuk has fundamentally future elements to it. It's describing a day where all the earth has been placed under the rule and reign of God in the person of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 11.9, this statement is almost said exactly the same. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in Isaiah, it's in response to the Assyrians who ruled before the Babylonians. But in Isaiah 11, the surrounding context is a vision of peace, where violence is no more. You see, the Babylonian kingdom is known for bloodshed and violence. But when the glory of the Lord covers the earth, everlasting peace will reign. This is a reference to the future that the scriptures speak of when God will establish his kingdom forever. It's a foreshadowing. Of the coming of the King. For Jesus Christ is the glory of God, and his glory will be known as the waters cover the sea. You see, the knowledge of the glory of God has been spreading ever since Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. I mean, think about the peoples around the world from every different tribe and tongue and nation that acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There are more Christians in Asia than there are in North America and Europe combined. This is God's declaration to the whole world that all human empires will fall, especially ones built on violence and the shedding of human blood. Now, one last thing I want us to see in verse 14, and that is the word knowledge, knowledge, The knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That word carries with it more than just intellectual awareness. It's not simply all the world will have knowledge of God's glory. It's rather an intimate knowledge. I know my wife Gracie. I don't just know about her, but I know her relationally and intimately in a way that none of you do. God's declaring that a day is coming where people will know the glory of God in a personal, intimate, relational way. You see, instead of the earth being polluted with blood, the earth will be permeated with the knowledge of the glory of God. Though this verse captures judgment, it also displays hope. Hope for humanity. Specifically for those who are described in verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. Those who live by faith will know the glory of God. Now, where does this knowing come from? How do we gain this knowledge of the glory of God? Well, the scriptures tell us that this knowledge of the glory of God has come through the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, I think here in verse 14, this is a direct allusion to Jesus. The two scriptures demonstrate this. In John 1, 14 to 18, we read this about Jesus. And the Word became flesh. The Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And look at this. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from him his fullness, for from him, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ and then John says this: no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side so the only God who sits at the Father's side, the Son of God, he has made him known. He has made him known." Second Corinthians 4:6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light, look at this, of the knowledge of the glory of God. An exact reference to Habakkuk chapter 2. God has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus has shone in our hearts. You see, verse 14 has within it both judgment and hope. Judgment for those who ultimately live for themselves, who seek glorification, the one whose soul is puffed up, and hope for those who have placed their trust in God. See, this verse would have brought great comfort to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, one day the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, not the glory of Babylon. Babylon's days are numbered, Habakkuk. See, in these first three woes, God is making clear to Habakkuk and to us that the justice of God shall prevail upon the earth. That there is a moral order to God's universe. Now here's how I want to end off this morning. There are two more woes, which we're not going to look at this morning. But here's what I want us to see and understand. Two things that I want us to see. First, the immediate context of this passage is, of course, the literal nation of Babylon. God is declaring judgment upon the literal nation of Babylon for its crimes. God promises that Babylon will face justice, and he promises that God's glory alone will cover all the earth which is fulfilled in Jesus. Now, you may this morning feel pretty good about yourself when you compare yourself to the Babylonian nation. And I'm guessing none of us here, I hope, haven't participated in the oppression of others to gain wealth. Maybe you have. I don't think anyone here has shed blood in order to build security and safety for oneself. You're not attempting to build a worldly empire. But here's what we need to understand. All of these sins, these horrific sins that Babylon did on a nationwide scale, when you break them down to the individual level, they are actually just some very ordinary commands in the scriptures. You shall not covet. We are all guilty of coveting, lusting after that which does not belong to us, wanting that which does not belong to us, being bitter and jealous when we see others have what we don't have. Not only that, Thou shalt not steal. That's what they did. They simply stole. Have you stolen? I have. I know as a kid I stole many things. It's not the size of the item you steal, God looks at the heart. Stealing is wickedness before God. The idolatry of wealth. I think that's timely for us in North America. The Chaldeans consumed wealth as they plundered nation after nation. How many of us are living for money and security and wealth? Or what about simply this? Hatred for one's enemies. That's what they did. They hated these other nations. All of these are grievous sins before God. We are all guilty. We are all more like Babylon than we think. See here, the passage here is referring to the literal Babylon. But the scriptures take Babylon and often use it as a metaphor to identify anyone who lives in opposition to God. In other words, the scriptures paint a picture of two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Babylon. And you're either living in the kingdom of Babylon, or you're living in the kingdom of God. You're either living for the kingdom of Babylon, or you're living for the kingdom of God. Your life either reflects the values and morals or lack of morals of Babylon, or reflects the values and morals of Christ's kingdom. You see, Babylon in the scriptures is known for everything that is contrary to God's moral will and God's ways. God says, love your neighbor. Babylon says, take advantage of your neighbor. God says, care for the oppressed and the vulnerable. Babylon says, conquer the oppressed and the vulnerable. God says, do not steal. Babylon says, take what you want when you want it. God says, do not covet that which does not belong to you. Babylon says, lust after what you don't have. God says, sacrifice your own safety and security in the service of others. Babylon says, your safety and security are the most important things. God says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. Babylon says, money can buy you happiness. God says, live for my glory. And Babylon says, live for self. I could go on and on, but which better describes you? The kingdom of Babylon or the kingdom of Jesus? Are you living for the glory of God or for self? There are two kingdoms. Which kingdom are you a part of? The kingdom of Babylon or the kingdom of Jesus? And hear this, everyone who is of the kingdom of Babylon will face the same end as Babylon. Now you may ask, how does one go from the kingdom of Babylon to the kingdom of Jesus? Well, here's the answer. By forsaking the kingdom of Babylon and by surrendering oneself to the king of the kingdom of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation 18, John has this vision of the fall of the kingdom of Babylon, which we read this morning. But there's a moment where God calls to his people in the midst of Babylon, and he says this, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped up high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. You want to know how to enter the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Come out of Babylon and surrender yourself to the true and everlasting king. Give your allegiance no longer to the spirit of Babylon, but to the king of kings, the one who died and conquered sin and death and reigns forevermore. Do not be the man whose soul is puffed up, but be the person who chooses to live by faith in God and what God has said and promised. Trust him. The second thing I want us to see this morning is if you're here this morning and you already belong to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, hear this. Babylon's time is coming to an end. And God has promised that justice shall prevail and that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to fill the whole earth. Therefore, do not lose hope but trust in God. Let's pray. Father, you are the God who causes the dead to rise. And I pray, Lord, for those who are here this morning who are still living in Babylon, that by your power and grace, you might take them from the city of Babylon and place them in the city of your beloved Son, our King and Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be still and know that you are God and to remember that the system of this world that is in opposition to you will one day end and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will be established and will reign forevermore. And I pray that we would have our hope on that reality. And I pray that we would live lives knowing that to be true. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.